to uh, Romans chapter 13. Uh, Romans 13 is where we will be tonight. Um, this is the last evening in our series, The Love Bug, so we're going to wrap uh, things up with uh, Romans chapter 13. Um, I will never forget the feeling, um, something that we experienced a while back. Allison and I were living in Virginia, and uh, ever since we had been married, we were struggling to pay off credit card debt. Um, We were pinching pennies and following a strict budget and making sacrifices wherever we could, inching ever closer to our goal of finally paying it off. And we had this mantra that we would repeat over and over and over as a, a, a way to uh, keep ourselves focused on that goal. That mantra that we would uh, repeat over and over and over was debt-free in 2013. So in 2013, the goal was uh, we will finally pay off our debt. Um, and so, like I said, Allison kept us on a strict budget. And uh, after several years of hard work, we finally did it. We were debt-free, and it felt so wonderful. It felt so awesome. It felt like uh, a weight had been lifted off of our shoulders. It felt free, and it lasted all of one year. Um, In 2014, we had two very major life changes. One was the birth of our daughter, Uh, and then two weeks later, After that, an 800-mile move here to northern Indiana, where, as we look out the window, uh, snow is falling in a major way, and uh, blizzard conditions. So that move meant a lot of things for us. One, it meant, of course, uh, transitioning out of the job that I had. Um, That meant moving costs. That meant putting our house on the market. Um, And we figured, you know, the market is good, Uh, it won't take too long to sell our house because we've taken really good care of it, Um, it should be easy. Well, of course, we were wrong about that. Uh, When we moved here to Indiana, uh, we spent our first six weeks living in the guest room of uh, a gentleman and his wife here in, uh, in Plymouth. And the only job that I could get at the time was at Radio Shack in the mall. Um, As it turns out, there are very few jobs that care if you have two master's degrees in ministry-related fields. Um, Very few jobs care about pastoral experience. Uh, Even though on my resumes and my applications, I tried to put my pastoral job as management Uh, that didn't really get me any points anywhere. I even got turned down at a coffee shop because they said that I was overqualified. Now, being underqualified makes sense to me. Being underqualified means that you don't have the skills to perform a job. But the term overqualified to me is really, really stupid. If you are overqualified for a job, what that means is that the company that's hiring you is going to get the best bang for their buck. Okay? They're going to get the best possible labor. They're clearly not hiring a moron. Clearly the person they're hiring is desperate for work or else they wouldn't be applying there. So they're going to work hard. Might as well take advantage of that, right? Well, that's what Radio Shack did. 
uh, was to take full advantage. They welcomed me in with open arms. And at the time that I started working there, I didn't realize why they were so uh, welcoming. And it's because they no longer cared who they were hiring because they were going bankrupt. So they were a sinking ship, and they knew this. I did not. So they probably didn't even read my resume before saying, sure, you're hired to work here for a few months as we shut everything down slowly. So with two master's degrees and five years of management experience, I started working this dead-end job at minimum wage plus a roll of quarters that they called commission. Uh, Meanwhile, our house was sitting on the market in Virginia without so much as a bite or interest. I think maybe one or two people looked at it one time, but there was never any sniff of an offer. And so it took about five minutes for all of our money to run out uh, while we were here. And so we were running on fumes, and we were only ever able to pay the bare minimum, bare essentials on our bills. And so everything else got put on credit cards. And these cards that we'd worked so hard to pay off now began to accrue more and more stuff as we begrudgingly put our expenses on them. Now, mind you, we weren't blowing up our credit cards with fun money. It's not like we were actually going out and having a good time. We were putting our bills on credit cards. Uh, Then throw in medical bills for uh, the hospital when Marisol was born. And before we knew it, that debt that we worked so hard to pay off rapidly climbed up. Once we were finally able to sell our house, um, and I was no longer working for an obsolete dinosaur company, uh, and we were actually making some progress, at that point we could finally stop putting things on credit. And by then, our credit card debt had ballooned back up to almost $20,000. Whoopee. Since then, we've had to restart the debt reduction program, and it sucks. And there are hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month that get flushed down the toilet to the credit card company. And if statistics are true, probably most people who are listening to this sermon know exactly how that feels. According to the numbers, the average American household that has credit uh, owes about $9,000. So, Allison, congratulations, we are above average. Good for us. What makes it harder is that a lot of people can only afford to make minimum payments on their credit cards, and that means that credit card companies are making money hand over fist, keeping people in debt. Um... If everything goes according to plan, please, Jesus, let everything go according to plan, uh, we are hoping to be out of debt within the next, I don't know, 50 years. Now, hopefully it's three, uh, debt-free and 2023 this time around. Um, But again, a lot of people are just making minimum payments. So if you do the math, if if your minimum payment on a $5,000 balance is about $150, well, then only about 47 of those dollars are going towards principal if you have the average 25% APR. And it'll take you five years to pay off $5,000 of debt. And in that time, you have paid $4,800 in interest 
So you have paid twice what you borrowed by making minimum payments. Uh, So that means paying off debt takes a long time. Then you throw in mortgage payment, you throw in student loans, car payments. Kind of feels like I'm going to be in debt forever. Uh, And I've got good news for us. In a spiritual sense, that is true. We are going to be in debt forever. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that the encouraging word that you came for in this blizzard to hear? Amen, we're going to be in debt forever. In a spiritual sense, there is a debt that we will never pay off. And that debt is the debt of love. We will never be able to pay off the debt of love that Christ has paid for our salvation. But the thing is, that's not a debt that he asks us to pay him back. We receive his love, and at that point we are his children forever. And he's not a creditor that's holding a ledger until we've done enough good things to pay off the debt that we have accrued. But there is one place where he asks us to at least make minimum payments, and that's to each other. Because if we do, we reflect the love that the Lord has given to us. So, uh, Romans chapter 13, we will be looking at verses 8 through 14. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, again, tonight we conclude the Love Bug series um, where we have talked about the fact that the greatest need that we have is to be loved. It is not only our greatest need, it is also our greatest desire, whether we choose to admit that or not. We are nothing without love, and we will do anything in order to receive that love. We'll do whatever we think it takes to feel uh, loved. And that includes hiding who we truly are. It includes putting up facades because our greatest fear is that if we're fully known, we will never be fully loved. But we serve a God who already knows everything that there is to know about us, every word that we will ever say, everything we'll ever do, every thought we will ever think, and yet still loves us fully anyway. So we're called to take the mask off to lay the facade down and invite him fully into our hearts so that we can fully receive and experience his love, this love that we so desperately need. Once we receive that love from him, then we're called to reflect that love toward each other in the church. We are called to be a church that loves one another, to accept the dirty job of being knee-deep in each other's mess. Daryl is wearing the perfect sweatshirt for that today. Um, It says... I am a mess, yet deeply loved. Love it. Perfect hoodie. 
so we need to walk in here and be authentic and love each other. And so today we conclude this series by talking about the obligation that we have to continually pour out that love not only toward each other here in the church, but towards every person that we encounter in our lives. So to sum up this entire series, it is that we receive the perfect love of God, then we reflect that love toward each other in the church, and then we reflect that love to our neighbor. So to borrow from the terminology in the first sermon of the series, the love bug is meant to be forwarded to every person in our address book. Here in Romans chapter 13, Paul begins in the first seven verses of this chapter by talking about submission to authorities. And there's some debate surrounding uh, this text, whether he's referring to the Roman government or if he's referring to the ruling class of the Jewish synagogue. But the point is, in the greater context of where this chapter is found in Romans chapter 12 through 15, Paul is telling the church how to practically live out the command that he gives in Romans chapter 12, which is to uh, present your body as a living sacrifice. So in Romans 13, 1 through 7, he talks about how to be a follower of Christ as a citizen how our citizenship in, uh, in political and uh, earthly authority, what that looks like, how we are to be good citizens. And he talks about how we submit to authorities that God has put in place because to submit to earthly authority is to submit to God. And if we are rebelling against those authorities, we are actually rebelling against God. Elsewhere, uh, Jesus taught to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And so, uh, in verse 7 of Romans uh, 13, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so, what Paul is doing is he's commanding the Roman church to be good members of society. There are to be people that pay, pay their taxes, there are to be people that are paying off their debt, they're paying their bills, and they're treating people with honor and respect. So, with this same monetary language, Paul then describes how the church ought to view their lives in light of what Christ has done for us. And that is that we are forever indebted. So, if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Pay back what you owe... As you pay on what you could never pay back. Pay back what you owe as you pay on what you could never pay back. So, uh, verse number 8 once more. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. There are some people that take this verse to mean that Christians should never borrow from anyone that Christians should never take out any kind of loan, they should never have any kind of debt, they should always pay in cash for everything. Because if they did take out a loan or borrowed for any reason, it would be breaking a commandment that here says, owe to no one anything. The problem is, that doesn't line up with other places in the Bible. 
there are laws in the Old Testament that deal with fair lending, where God gives commands to the Israelites how to lend, how to borrow in a fair way. And Jesus does the same thing in the Gospels, where Jesus talks about fair lending practices. So this is one of those places where I would have to disagree with someone like Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey has a lot of good stuff, a a lot of wisdom, a lot of practical advice, but he is one that would say the Bible teaches us to never be in any kind of debt. I disagree with that. What the Bible does is it teaches us to be good stewards. It teaches us to be wise with our resources, but it doesn't teach us to never borrow. So this, this verse is not a command that we never borrow. What it actually means is that we are supposed to be diligent in paying back anything that we actually owe. Um, Have you ever loaned money to a family member or a friend and they never paid you back? Like maybe you loaned your brother hundreds of dollars for a flight so that he could be with your family for vacation. And he said, I'll pay you back, don't worry. And it's been nine years and you know you're never going to get your $500 back. No, that's not an oddly specific example because it's real life. It just happens to sound like real life. Um, All I'm saying is don't be that guy. Okay, don't be that person that shirks your responsibility, shirks your debt. Um, if anyone watching feels convicted by that, uh, send me an email. Um, if you're going to borrow, be diligent about repaying. That's what this statement means when it says, owe no one anything. Work to make sure that your outstanding debts are paid off. But then he switches from monetary language and goes straight into relational language. He says, owe no no one anything physical, that's that's the money, make sure that debts get paid off, but there is a debt that you have to each other that will never be paid off, and that debt is to love one another. The one thing that we will always, always, always owe to everyone else is love. And that's whether they have ever given to me in the first place. When you owe money to a credit card company, it is because you have taken their money and you have used their money and now you have to give back what you borrowed plus 26% APR every single year of compounding interest. When you are given credit you are required to repay the credit. And the same is true with love. We have been given a credit, and we're responsible to repay the credit that we've been given. We're to be good stewards of that credit. And God is the one that gave that credit to us. But the way that we are to be good stewards of repaying that credit is to repay that love to each other. Again, the way that this chapter begins frames that. Uh, Let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So it clearly tells us that God has put human authorities in place. So if there's any human authority that's in place, it's because God has put them there. And when we rebel against those authorities, the one that we're really rebelling against is actually God. When we submit to those authorities, the ones that we're really submitting to is God. So when we respect the authority he's put in place, we're actually respecting him. When we rebel against the authority he's put in place, we're actually rebelling against him. So continuing along with that same sort of thought, he says that we're to be good stewards of our indebtedness to each other by the way that we love one another. Because God is the one who has put all of these people here. God has put the people who are in our lives, in our lives for a purpose. And so, if we fail to love each other, what we are really failing to do is love God. When we fail to treat other people with respect, what we are doing is failing to treat God with respect. When we do treat others with respect, we're not just respecting them, we are respecting their creator. Every person that is made in the image of God and bears God's image is a person that we're responsible to love. And when we do love them, who we are actually loving is God. That means when we do anything that is the opposite of that, anything that is dehumanizing, we are denigrating the image of God. And so, even when it's a stranger that I cuss out in traffic, never done that, I'm, guil- I'm not guilty, it's just a hypothetical, I am doing that straight to God. And so, I am responsible to repay that debt always, because God is the one that has given me credit. Point number two, love is the one responsibility of the church. It is the one responsibility that we have as as church members. Look again at verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, as it turns out, following the entire law with all of its commandments, following the entire Bible, is actually really, really simple. It's really simple. All you have to do is love your neighbor as yourself. All you have to do to follow the entire Bible is love your neighbor as yourself. But that's really where it gets difficult. Because to love your neighbor means to do no wrong to your neighbor. To never commit adultery against them. Or to never treat them with anger. Or to never covet their possessions. In order to love them, all you have to do is no wrong towards them. 
easier said than done. It's simple, but it's pretty friggin' hard. Now, Paul is not the one that came up with this idea. This idea that this is the fulfillment of the law. He is quoting, in fact, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 34 through 40. Uh, The Pharisees here um, are arguing with the Sadducees, and uh, they ask Jesus, uh, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Trying to get Jesus to rank the commandments. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the entirety of the law. Paul says this again in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 14. Turning there quickly. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the context of Galatians chapter 5, when Paul says this, he's telling them that they cannot get to God through circumcision, through a, a religious ritual. And the Pharisees were telling them at this point that they needed to do that in order to earn their way to God. So here in Galatians chapter 5, what Paul is arguing is that the way Christians are to serve the Lord faithfully is not by heaping up good works, but by loving their neighbor as themselves. So you might say that this is the one responsibility that we have. That it is the greatest responsibility of the church. To love our neighbor as ourselves, And it is. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 13 verse 35. By this all people will know that you're disciples. If you have love for one another. The one thing that will set us apart from everyone else. Is if we reflect the love that has been given to us. To our neighbor. Now, just as an aside here, if you're wondering, well, who is my neighbor? The same question was asked uh, of Jesus by a Pharisee in Luke chapter 10. A Pharisee came to Jesus again to test him, and Jesus had been talking about loving your neighbor, and the Pharisee said, well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to get a list together. All right, I'm going to love these people on the list, and anyone whose name is not on the list, I don't have to send them a Christmas card, all right? It's not a responsibility. Jesus responds by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in this this story, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells the person that he's talking to, this, this religious leader, this Pharisee, about a Samaritan being the hero, and the Samaritans were their most hated enemies. So the point is, Jesus essentially answers the question, who is my neighbor, with, well, everyone is your neighbor, even your enemy. Even the people you hate, even the people you can't stand, even those people are your neighbor. And so, 
our responsibility as believers, as the church, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the ministry of the church. The way that the church does that is not primarily through programs. And that's probably where a lot of churches get things wrong. Uh, we should have a program for this. And, and sometimes that is true. Sometimes there should be a program for things. Sometimes there should be an organized effort where we try to get everybody to show up and volunteer for something. There's a time and a place for that. But typically it's not about a program. Typically it's about every member of the body loving their neighbor as themselves as they go about their daily lives. You know, every week I stand up here and say the mission starts after church. And and this is what I'm talking about. The prayer is to set a culture in which the expectation for ministry is that ministry is not a program. Ministry is what we do every single day in our oikos. That every single one of us is called to be a minister of the gospel. Every single one of us is called to be a priest in the holy priesthood. And where we do that priestly work is Monday through Friday or Saturday or Sunday, whatever your work schedule is. When you go to work, when you go home, when you're hanging out with your friends, when you are interacting with people, that is where true ministry happens. And there's a time and a place for programs and official church things, but the primary thing that we're called to do is to love the people that are right next to us every single day. Because through that, the love of the Lord is reflected. Finally, point number three. The time to love your neighbor is running out. Look at what he says in verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Essentially what that means is that there's no time to mess around. The end is coming. And that is true for every one of us. Because even if we're not talking about the end of the world, which at some point will come, and every day we get closer, the end is coming for you soon. The end is coming for your neighbor soon. None of us are promised a single breath. And at any point, any one of us could go. Any one of us could go out into this blizzard tonight, God forbid, and that be the last time that we see each other. And so what we hear in this verse is that people's eternities are at stake. And we don't have time to waste. I heard someone say one time that out of all the things that we're going to be able to do in heaven, and it's a list that is inexhaustible, there's one thing that we will not be able to do in heaven. That one thing is preaching the gospel to the lost. Evangelism. Loving those who are outside the church. That's the one thing that we will not be able to do in heaven. Because at that point, 
it is too late. And so this passage teaches us that the hour has come for us to wake up from sleep. The hour has come for us to stop wasting time on the things of this world, on things that don't matter. That doesn't mean that we never have any downtime. The things that he specifically points to are sin. He specifically points to the works of darkness. And the works of darkness include things that are not listed here, though he lists some specific things. We waste so much time on the works of darkness. And he says, we have, to, we have to lay that aside. The hour is coming. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. So we've got to live like it's daytime. We've got to live like Jesus is coming back any minute now. Because he might be. And it might be the end for any of us at any moment. And so we have to live like that. Now, one of the nice things about being a small church plant is that we don't have anything set in stone. We can be very flexible and be whatever we need to be. There's nothing concrete. We're not set in our ways. At this point, there's no sacred cows that we would ever have to kill. And so we're free to do whatever we need to do to reach people. And, and that's going to be the goal. And we have to be willing to be flexible. Earlier this week, I was, I was reading an article by a guy named Kerry Newhoff, and the article was titled, Seven Things Christians Should Give Up to Reach Unchurched People. Uh, and so he lists these seven things that Christians need to give up in order to be effective in their evangelism, in order to be effective uh, in their worship. He says one of them is, number one, music preferences. A lot of churches are living and dying on a music preference. I don't think that's us, but uh, he lists it nonetheless. The second is politics. Um, He says, by definition, your church needs to include people who are different than you. God is not a Republican, a Democrat, a conservative, a liberal, or a socialist. He transcends all our political categories, however however important they might be to us. Politics matter, but it will never change the world the way the gospel can or has. The church doesn't exist to elect or defeat politicians. It exists to glorify Christ and grow his kingdom. Now, a lot of these things, and this one especially, I think, is uh, directly related to how we present ourselves on social media. Um, I know that every single one of us, as we scroll through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, when we see the things that other Christians post, every one of us has had facepalm moments where we're like, why are you posting that? Probably we have also been guilty of posting things that other people are saying, why are you posting that? And the world sees the things that we post. And if the world can tell that politics are more important to the church than the truth of the gospel, well, then it's no wonder why the church is losing so much ground in so many people's lives. Because for so many people, being affiliated with a particular view has become way more important than uh, properly representing the gospel. We need to love the kingdom more than we love the country. We need to love our neighbor more than we love the rules concerning the neighbor. Our primary responsibility is to the kingdom, and that's what we have to present. The third thing that he lists is style. 
A lot of churches live and die on style and preferences. And our preferences can't get in the way of uh, reaching people. Next, he lists buildings. That the way churches treat their property uh, is often indicative of the uh, mistakes that they're making in not reaching people. Number five is money. This is for all of us. That it is going to take our resources. It's going to take what God has given us in order to uh, see the kingdom built. Number six is time. He says, being the church is a lot more than showing up for an hour on Sunday or tuning in online. We have to be willing to give God the best of our time, the first of our time. Ministry is not something that we can just fit into our schedule. We're not looking at our schedule and saying, well, I'll fit God in wherever I can. This has to be the first and most important thing in in the way that we set our schedule. And the, the last thing he lists is our lives. He says, Christians should be the most generous and selfless people on the planet. Sadly, we're often known as the stingiest and most selfish. Ask any non-Christian who's worked at a restaurant. The gospel calls us to die to ourselves so that others may live and put something bigger than ourselves above ourselves. If you give your life away, you find it. When you die to yourself, something greater rises. The one debt that we will always have to God is to love each other as we love ourselves. And it is in doing that that we, will ref- that we will fulfill the Great Commission. It's not about words. It's about words that are matched up with a life of love. And so, to sum up the series, we are to receive the perfect love of God, our, our greatest need. We are to lay down the facades and the mask. We're to be genuine and authentic. We're to invite God into every corner of our lives, allowing his love to change us in ways that only he can. And then we are to take that love that we have been given and be a church that's defined by it, uh, among our membership, loving each other. And then we take that love out the door with us to every single person that we encounter. In doing so, the love bug gets spread to every person in our address book. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this evening. God, I thank you for uh, those that were able to come in the blizzard today. And Lord, we pray for those who weren't able to be with us um, for a number of reasons. God, I pray that uh, throughout this series, each one of us has been encouraged, convicted if necessary, Lord, I pray that you have called us to a deeper level of commitment to you. Lord, I pray that if there are any ways that any of us are holding back, Lord, that your spirit would call us to lay that down. Lord, I pray that if there are people who are listening who have not experienced your love in this way, Lord, let tonight be the night that that takes place. God, I pray that we would be a church that's filled with your love. A church that is filled with people who've experienced the depth of how much you love us. And Lord, that that would make us a church that loves each other and loves our neighbor. God, I pray that you would help us to take what you have for us, that your spirit would plant that seed deep within our hearts, and that we would take that to work with us tomorrow. That we would take it home with us tonight. That we would take it with us every place that we go. God, we thank you so much for your love, and I pray that you would help us to reflect it 
to every single person. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and we are dismissed.